Welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. This is John Halsman reporting in to talk about an issue very near and dear to my heart, the fall of Afghanistan. In 2006, I wrote a book called Ethical Realism with Anatole Levin that changed my life. Although both of us were card-carrying members of the foreign policy establishment in the United States, we wrote a book that bit the hand that fed us, saying that nation building was a deeply flawed intellectual idea and that it would lead to utter defeat in both Iraq and Afghanistan. This inspired both scorn and anger on behalf of the establishment, and soon we were out on our ears, beginning better lives ahead, in my case, running my own global political risk firm, but certainly upending my life. Looking back now at being vindicated all these years later, 15 years later, of course, I feel nothing but sick to my stomach about what's happened in Afghanistan, even though it confirms every single thing that I wrote back then, when, frankly, this was very easy to see, if you can but see it. Um, There are so many mistakes that have been made immediately by the Biden administration and how this was done that one suspects that maybe people wanted this done badly so that Biden wouldn't leave in the first place. But that certainly is a conspiracy theory that I cannot justify, but it certainly seems beyond even the realm of the usual Washington incompetence, which is very high, higher than people think as to what is going on. If you look merely, there's so many examples, but if you look merely at what's happened in Bagram Air Force Base, to get in and out of a country as you're leaving it would seem to be a basic necessity. You have, in essence, at Bagram Base, one of the finest uh, airports in the Middle East. You have a possible two-runway airport that is utterly secured by the United States, and they gave it up on July 4th, the administration sneaking away in the middle of the night not even bothering to tell the inept and corrupt Afghan government of Ghani that they were indeed doing this. To do that only to have a bottleneck at Kabul International Airport makes no sense whatsoever. And for this, Biden is rightly paying a price, being seen as incompetent. But beneath this price, there is a larger issue that must be addressed. The very people who got us into this mess, the neoconservatives on the right, that Anatole and I talked about in ethical realism, and the liberal interventionists on the left uh, are looking desperately to blame this all on Biden, as though 20 years of disaster are the end game, as though nothing preceded this, when it's what happened preceding it that led to this nation-building catastrophe. Don't let them get away with it by focusing on the very real chaos of the moment. They are obscuring blame. And the reason they're doing it is they're trying to save their careers and their ideology and say this is not their fault. Republics rise and fall based on meritocracy. Republics only work if you hold people accountable. When they do good things like Eisenhower and win World War II, you make them president. When they do bad things, as happened after Vietnam, McGeorge Bundy never became dean of Harvard, even though everyone thought he would. Robert McNamara went on to no other good jobs after his World Bank sinecure. And the reason for this is that they failed. This has not happened over Iraq and Afghanistan. The very people who got this into this mess, the Ann Applebaums, the Max Boots, the Bill Crystals, the Charles Krauthammers show no sign, no repentance along the way whatsoever. And in fact, they're now saying, if only we'd done this better, if we'd stayed longer in leaving, you see why we should have stayed in the first place. This is lunacy. And so rather than play their game, let's hold them accountable and look at the very real lessons that we should. Otherwise, this will happen again and again and again.
People who are not held accountable in republics lead to their destruction. We must never let any of these people, including many members, I'm a member, as you know, of the Council on Foreign Relations, Many, many members, a vast majority of the membership of the foreign policy elite of the United States were in favor of this. None of them should sit in positions of power based upon the incredible strategic catastrophe that they missed. This is too important to not have consequences. $2.5 trillion, 2,500 American lives have been lost in 20 years of our strategic focus has been on utter sideshows like Afghanistan rather than on the main game with China. These people shouldn't hold office. They shouldn't, frankly, run a lemonade stand. What lessons should we really learn? First, Afghanistan isn't a discrete historical event. It's part of a larger phenomenon. Afghanistan is part of failed nation-building efforts in Somalia, Haiti, Iraq, Libya, and Afghanistan. If it isn't seen as part of this larger process, what will be missed along the way is that empirically the same procedure was tried over and over again. It fits Einstein's definition of insanity to have the same failed results and expect a better conclusion. It also reminds me of nothing so much as Charlie Brown trying to kick the football from Lucy. Lucy persuades Charlie Brown that every time will be different, that history doesn't matter, that all empirical evidence doesn't matter, but this time she'll let him kick it and every single time she does not. Charlie Brown learns nothing from this and is caught in existential failure, while Charles Schultz is a genius. And this is what's happened with our foreign policy elite. Next time will be different, is what they say every single time, doing the same thing. In Somalia, the United States cut and ran after very few casualties because we simply had no interest in Somalia whatsoever. Whatsoever. And that begs the question, why were we there in the first place? And of course, the people who suffered were the Somalis. We made absolutely no difference in quelling the chaos that is endemic in Somalia, the civil war, the terrorist breeding grounds. We did nothing in our intervention except prove the United States was fickle. Haiti, we have the opposite problem. We've intervened in Haiti a dozen times in the last century. Nothing has changed. Haiti is still a voodoo-riven kleptocracy that is an economic basket case. The United States has made not one gesture to change this structural problem, despite promiscuous interventions that have amounted to nothing. Iraq, do I really have to say anything more about Iraq? Everyone who voted in favor of this war, every member of the council who thought this was a good idea, ought to be thrown out of the council and never work for the American government or any political risk firm again. This is too important to be left to people whose track record is this bad. Libya, Barack Obama rightly says this is the dumbest thing that he absolutely ever did. And as a result of this, you've left Libya, which was a stable country run by a bad man, Colonel Gaddafi. And you now have an unstable country that is a source of civil war endemic. You have ISIS regrouping in the south of Libya. And you have a refugee crisis always about to spill onto Europe's beleaguered southern shores, which in a way they deserve because they were the ones who encouraged this intervention in the first place. They took a stable country and they made it a failed state. That was the result of nation-building intervention. Afghanistan only makes sense as the cherry on the Sunday of all these other events. And the next time one of the neocons or liberal interventionists tell you how easy it is to do nation building, think of this list, Somalia, Haiti, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan. Empirically over and over again, it's been proven that it is not easy. It is incredibly difficult to do nation building well. And our track record historically is terrible. They have to confront that reality before they get us to do this. 
ever again. The second point ties into Lawrence of Arabia, which we've mentioned before in these podcasts. One of the great joys of my life was Simon and Schuster asking me to write the foreword to Lawrence's magisterial book, The 27 Articles, which talks about how he correctly dealt with emerging peoples in Arabia and Syria. And the highlight of Lawrence's book, he says, the key to the study of Arab peoples or any emerging peoples, the key to mastering them analytically, dealing with them in a positive way, is the unremitting study of them. That is not what we've seen in Afghanistan. If anyone knew anything about Afghanistan, they would simply know that it's not a nation that needs building. It's not a nation at all. It's a geographic expression. Afghanistan is an amalgamation of tribes and has been since Alexander the Great, the Pashtun, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Hazaras, who have a very loose central government that only unite together to repel foreign invaders and then go back to fighting amongst themselves. And this has been the pattern from Rudyard Kipling all the way back to ancient times in Alexander. This is how Afghanistan functions, but there is no nation to build. And anyone who bothered to know Afghan history would know this, but the neocons and the liberal interventionists, impatient with history, utopian in their views, that history can be overcome, that it doesn't need to be looked at, that a specific country's culture, history, economics, religious ties, ethnicity, that none of these things matter, and that a one-size-fits-all centralization well, fixed states that have fallen apart or never existed in the first place, this is an operation doomed to failure. And they fell right into the Lawrence of Arabia trap. I remember when I worked at the Heritage Foundation over Iraq, one of my jobs was that people going out to Iraq to run the place would be sent to me for a briefing, where in 30 minutes I would explain to them the basic building blocks of Iraqi society what Sunnis were, what Shias were, and what Kurds were. Nobody talks except exiles about being Iraqis primarily. If you put a gun to the head of these people, they'd say they were Sunni, Shia, and Kurds. But that doesn't fit the American pattern of centralization. So we artificially assume a unity that simply doesn't exist. A confederal arrangement would suit these disparate peoples far better. But instead, one-size-fits-all centralization occurs, which only lasts at the barrel of a gun because it is artificial to the cultures of these people. This lesson, the neocons and the liberal interventionists had no time for. I remember at the meeting at the council saying, has anyone ever been to Iraq? Has anyone ever met an Iraqi who left before the fall of the monarchy in 1958? The Iraqis we're talking to were last in Iraq when the Dodgers played baseball in Brooklyn. When the Dodgers played baseball in Brooklyn, and yet we're assuming they know what's going on within the society, this lack of cultural knowledge, what Lawrence knew about the Hejaz in Western Arabia, the clan structure, the tribes, the Ruala, the Hawatat, the Seraphit, he knew about all this fundamentally. We do not know anything about Afghanistan still, that it's tribal in nature, that Ghani was nothing but a puppet seen as an American stooge. And this explains why 75,000 Taliban, primarily of the Pashtun tribe, can overwhelm 350,000 regular troops because the Pashtun believe in what they're doing, fits into their cultural situation as Pashtun. The artificial construct of the Ghani government will not survive the corruption and the American gravy train that leaves it. And of course, that's why they folded like a house of cards, because it was artificial, thereby proving the entire exercise was flawed from the beginning, from the beginning, which is why we must hold the neocons and liberal interventionists to what they did, 
from the beginning and not let the smoke screen of Biden's obvious incompetence change the subject from this fundamental flaw. The third point, losing was always going to be ugly. At some point, you still have to pull the Band-Aid. Did it have to be this ugly? Of course not. I'm appalled and sickened by what I see. But was it going to be ugly when you lose a war? That's not a reason to stay forever. That's not a good reason for American lives to be on the line, for more money to go away. Do we want our $2 trillion back? Could we use that to better American schools, roads, etc.? Do we want those people's lives back who died for nothing? And that is sinful. That is wrong. To die for a non-cause is not what we should do for our military men and women. We should only put them in harm's way for primary American interests. When those are at stake, we should do that, and they will serve and sound to the call. But to put them for promiscuous nation building that's bound to fail by the people back in Washington not knowing how Afghanistan and Iraq work, but arrogantly assuming they can, they can somehow run Iraq when they don't know who a Sunni, a Shia, and a Kurd are, is insanity. And it was always going to be ugly. As I wrote into Dare More Boldly, this is the losing gambler syndrome. This is how casino magnets make money. And what they do is simple. They say, dad loses the kid's college money. He has to keep playing roulette because he can't go back to mom acknowledging he lost the kid's college money. And of course, he keeps losing because you lose roulette at a rate of about 88%. He never addresses the fundamental problem, which is the fearful odds in the first place. That's what went wrong. We never addressed the fearful odds of doing this correctly. We never addressed the only way to do this correctly was to work culturally, as Lawrence said, within the boundaries of a culture and not trying to transcend them. And as a result, you keep playing and keep losing. This is why we stayed in Vietnam. The argument was lunacy of Westmoreland. A whole bunch of people have died. We've made real sacrifices, so we should stay. Never looking at why those sacrifices had led to failure in the first place. This is a dereliction of moral duty. This is a dereliction of strategic duty. And we must not let the people get away with this deeply flawed intellectual reasoning. Because the losing gambler syndrome means you stay forever until you are strategically bankrupt, or in the case of dad, financially bankrupt. And that is exactly the logic we've had, because underlying it is the point that what they really want to save, the folks at CFR who are in favor of this, the neocons, the liberal interventionists, the op-ed writers, the political risk colleagues of mine who got this so fundamentally wrong, what they really want to save is their careers. They know when this house of cards comes tumbling down, there will be a call for accountability, and they don't want to be left holding the hot potato when accountability is called for. Better to kick the can down the road so it doesn't seem to be the abject failure. Everybody knew Afghanistan was for at least the last decade, this abject failure. Better to just leave things going and someone else will take the blame when the whole thing falls down. This is moral cowardice, and we should expect better of our public policymakers, our opinion leaders, and indeed our government. Don't let them get away with this. Hold them to account. The great thing about the internet is everything is online. You can look at what people said and hold them accountable. I don't think it's in bad taste to go to all the meetings I do and challenge people when their call record is so appalling. If you're wrong about the rise of Trump, you're wrong about Afghanistan, you're wrong about Iraq, you're wrong about Brexit, you shouldn't be hired as a political risk consultant because you're not very good at it. The same goes for government. If you're wrong about all these things, as many people around Joe Biden have been, Secretary of State, 
Blinken has a horrible record of analytical calls. He's a decent man who I know, but that doesn't mean he's fit to be Secretary of State. I want people in these positions who have a good call record. And certainly in a country of 320 plus million, we can find a few. And we should hold ourselves to that standard. Don't let them get away with this. Don't let Tony Blair say the withdrawal in Afghanistan is imbecilic. What a lack of self-knowledge. Prime Minister Blair was the imbecile who urged on George W. Bush to make Iraq the disaster that it was. Hold him accountable. He is so unaware so unaware of his causing these disasters that he's blaming Biden for being at the tail end of the disaster that he caused. The only way he gets away with this nonsense is nobody holds him to it. And he's the imbecile. How dare he criticize anyone about nation building when he really needs to look in the mirror along with the neocons and liberal interventionists who got us into this mess in the first place. It's time we hold them accountable. There is, however, at the end of this, some good news. Out of the tragedy of Afghanistan, it will be very hard to fight wars of choice, promiscuous interventions for nation building in the near future. And those of us who got this right and sacrificed along the way, who lost jobs, who had their careers imperiled or stunted, or had to leave the country, frankly, as I did, should now say, not with gloating, but with sorrow. We must see that the people who did this never are in a position to do it again because we live in a different era. All these nation-building exercises failed. The only thing they have in common is the arrogance and hubris of the elite that put these things out in the first place. The not studying history, the not studying the record before, the not seeing that the losing gambler theory was never going to work. We must hold them accountable, and I believe we will to the point that we realize we live in a different time. The one thing all these interventions have in common is they were in a time of American strategic dominance, when the United States, after the end of the Cold War, but before, say, the 2008 financial crisis, was in the dominant position in the world. It was a unipolar moment. And in that unipolar moment, the United States had a lot of room, a lot of strategic give to make mistakes without them mattering very much. Although all these countries were tragedies, none of them changed the overall global situation in terms of power projection. Now we live in a world where China is a peer competitor, where we have to pivot to the Indo-Pacific, which has all the risk and all the reward in the future, we have to pivot to the Indo-Pacific, contain and engage China with our allies in the region from India to Japan to the Anglosphere countries, and be very, very serious about this being the locus of the future good of the world. Almost all the economic growth comes from here, but almost all the political risk comes from the Indo-Pacific. We must stop frittering away our abilities on wars of secondary choice. The one thing all these countries have in common, Somalia, Haiti, Iraq, Libya, and Afghanistan, is none of them are very important strategically to the United States. We must not let strategic sideshows blind us anymore because they fritter away tragically our abilities to do things when they matter. They do not make these places better, and they consume our effort, our blood, and our treasure. The world we live in now with a peer competitor in China 
where great power competition will rule the new day is simply too serious. And that is the major reason, beneath it all, strategically, we must not engage in these promiscuous wars of choice. And the best way to do this is to use very harsh language, use the internet where every speech and every word anyone has said is online, and hold the people who got us into these catastrophes accountable. Don't let them slide away in the smokescreen of Joe Biden's incompetence. Hold them instead to the fact that they're the reason we got into the mess in the first place. The world is now for serious people again, and we must go back to being the great power that is the last best hope of Earth. To do that, we must respect our military enough not to put it into promiscuous harm. We must be serious in our analytical considerations. And above all, we must be held to the things we say and do. If we do that, the United States will triumph. And if we fail, we will end up on the ash heap of history. These are the real lessons to be learned from Afghanistan, and we must start learning them now. Thank you so much for listening to Around the World in 20 Minutes, our weekly podcast. If you like this, please subscribe to our newsletter. And those of you who have already subscribed, I urge you to up the subscription to just the price of a Starbucks a month. $7 a month is what we're asking. So we continue to give you this important, timely, cutting-edge advice which frankly was the most portentous thing I ever did in my own career. And I'm delighted to be here with you as we move forward. Again, upping it to just $7 a month makes all the difference. Thank you so very much for listening.